0: hello and welcome back to the baseball trade values podcast my name is joshua iverson and i am the associate editor of baseballtradevalues.com joined as always by founder and owner john bitzer john this has been a very fun (laughs) fun playoffs so far i've I've really enjoyed the postseason um perhaps a little bit more so living out here in arizona and getting to root for those d-backs even though their days may be numbered here um how are you doing? And and I know before we get too deep
1: into the playoff talk, you'll you'll have some big news for us. But first, how are you doing? Doing well. Also enjoying the playoffs now that they've, you know, it seemed early on there were a lot of non-competitive games. And that's really changed over the past few days. So uh, enjoying the Arizona Philly series, although uh, it seems like that one's going in a pretty clear direction, as is maybe the other one. Um, so we may have a, a Phillies-Astros World Series, which sounds vaguely familiar. <laughs> You've been following the sport the last years. Okay. Um, but, yeah, I think it's been good. I, I, I think the Phillies are a fun team to watch. I love watching the Diamondbacks. I'm secretly rooting for them, even though the rest of my family is rooting for the Phillies because they're not that far from where we live. But, um,
0: yeah, it's been good. Nice. So we'll put a pin in the playoff talk for now. I know there's a lot to get into there as far as the teams that are still in and the teams that have been knocked out in the last two weeks. And a whole, lot of, a whole lot of teams and fan bases are starting to look at their offseason plans a little bit more closely now. So we'll get into that in just a second. But first, we have a bit of an announcement on the new site. This is finally, you know, we've been talking about it for probably close to six months at this point that, yes, the site is getting some much needed upgrades some new features a whole bunch of performance improvements all that good stuff and for a while it looked like it was going to happen mid-season but the timeline just got too crunched there was too much going on with the deadline and everything but it seems like now we are getting close to launch date and i don't want to get we don't want to put anything too specific down because this is all kind of in flux always is, but we are looking at a new version of the site in the next couple weeks. Early November is what we're looking at. And there will be tons more information and tons more content about this um, throughout the upcoming weeks posted to our social media. So make sure you're following us on Twitter at baseball values or on blue sky, where we are going to start being more active. Uh, also blue, uh, also baseball values on that site. Um, so yeah, just just keep your eyes posted to those two spots for more information. And I'm getting excited, John. We're we're real close here.
1: Yeah, I'm testing it all, and there's a lot of intricacies. There's this if you change this thing, it affects that other thing. There's a lot of uh, fun things going on. So I think I think um, hopefully fans of our site will really enjoy it when we launch it. There are a couple of ad free versions that have some really cool new features, which we'll talk about as we get closer. The technology is a ton faster, really quick searches, really quick results, really quick posting. All of that is gonna be, uh, I think, you know, uh, noticeably better than the current site, which we've kind of outgrown. Um, I did wanna give one heads up, which is that um, because we're moving uh, to a whole new technology platform, um, we're use, we're migrating all of the user information and all the comments and all the previous trades and everything. Um, but just a heads up to our users, there's one small thing you'll need to do when we go to the new site, which is update your password because the new site will, for some technology reason, require a new password. All the other things will be automatic. But this that's one thing. <laughs> so I just wanted to point that out.
0: Yeah, and that shouldn't be too big of a burden. Uh, um, it's like, like we've said, it's long overdue. Pretty much from day one, we had already outgrown the the WordPress framework that we previously yeah. used, but now it it's the site's gonna run a lot smoother a lot new lot of new uh, exciting features, a lot more that we have potential to do down the road. It's really exciting it's gonna be a big moment for us in our in you know the history of baseball trade values the handful of years we've been doing this this is one of our kind of big moments, so yeah. really excited for it more to come for sure,
1: yeah, and actually the timing the more I thought about it it's probably better now than it would have been had we launched before the deadline because what some of the new features we're talking about are really sort of corresponding to off-season activities. So we're talking about using our model to estimate um, free agent values of candidates. We're talking about using it for extension candidates, and we're talking about it for future trade values so you can kind of plan it out. So, And that's just a tease of a whole bunch of other features that we have, so more to come on that.
0: Right. As as I said earlier, keep an eye on our socials. We will keep you all updated on that exciting news. Um, But let's go ahead and circle back. We can take the pin out now and let's talk some playoffs. Um, I would like to start with the teams that are still in it. And I'm going to put an asterisk on that because we are recording this on Sunday afternoon, late afternoon. So the game six of the ALCS between the Rangers and Astros has not started yet. It's very possible by the time you're listening this that that series has been decided. The Astros are leading 3-2 right now, um, but we have that series going. And then on, in the NLCS, we also have the Phillies leading the D-backs 3-2, and that will resume play on on Monday for Game Six. So these have been two back and forth, really close, contended series. Um, I, I don't know if we want to get too deep into these two series specifically, because I'm sure we'll talk more about these teams when they do get eliminated, but do you have any kind of instant takeaways from any of these teams, either on like a franchise level on like a, how their moves in yeah. the previous deadlines and off seasons have worked out or just a, a general damn, the Astros
1: are really good at this thing kind of <laughs> level. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's clear the Astros know how to win the big ones. I mean, you know, I know that's a cliche, but it seems true. And, you know, the Phillies have some veteran guys who've been there, the Trey Turners and chorbers and Harpers. So they, they know how as well, you you know, it's, it's, I hate to sound cliche, but it's like the, you know, the, it's, it's that time when like the big boys do their thing and earn their money. And you can see why, because they are delivering in the Altuve home run, the other day was, was a perfect example of that, you know, so I, you know, that's the first thing that uh, strikes out of me. Like those, you know, I was thinking about this from a value perspective. It's not just about, even though we have a website that's about numbers and surplus value is the core component, there's still that sort of extra sort of dimension of greatness you can see with some of these players, you know, so, um, So that's the first point I would, I would mention the second point with regards to Arizona and Texas, to some degree, I don't know if they're going to lose or not, but you know, right now they're on the downside of things. Um, But Arizona seems like um, it's not just that they're happy to be there, but they're plucky. I mean, and again, it's cliche, they're plucky, but um, you know, I think they are going to be, you know, really strong in the next couple of years. And so you have kind of two, two teams who have been there and two teams that are sort of coming up. Um, and they're slightly different. Arizona was mostly built by the farm and a couple of smart trades. Uh, Texas was mostly built by a combination of free agent signings complemented. It's kind of like the reverse of what you would normally do is build through the farm and complement with free agents. They kind of flipped that model and said, OK, we're going to sign Seeger and send and some good pitchers, and bubble up the Evan Carters. So it's an interesting sort of model, but I think it's working for them. So those are my thoughts.
0: Yeah, I want to drill down into the Phillies a little bit here, just because, and this might not be the most you know collected group of thoughts, but they, they really stand out to me as kind of an indicator of a shift in how I evaluate the playoffs and how I, I look at this kind of thing. You know, there's the very sabermetric approach that I think I've really adhered to in recent years of, you know, postseason's a crapshoot, the, the money ball, you know. I just do what I can to get to the playoffs. And from there, it's pretty random. And I, there's obviously a ton of randomness involved. I'm not saying there isn't. But I think when you look at what the Phillies did last year and this year, there is something, you know, there is an it factor in the postseason. And it's hard to tell how much of it is, hey, the Phillies as a roster were constructed with this in mind, right? There's even even taking the intangibles out of it, This is a roster that because of its top heavy rotation, because of its deep bullpen, deep lineup, some like really interesting defensive replacement speed guys on the bench. Like there's a lot of reasons this lineup was or this this team, excuse me, was built for the postseason like very intentionally. I think I think that is hard to separate from they just have good vibes <laughs> and like they have the post-season secret sauce going on yeah. somehow. And like, you, you know, one through nine, any of those guys could come up there and they're just going to be cool as ice. And Nick Castellanos, he could be 0 for 14, but he's going to flip a ball into the right field seats to put the team ahead. And like, I, I don't know what it is. I'm not going to ascribe too much to it because then you're getting into this really difficult, intangible territory. And then you look at, you know, they knocked out The braves right that doesn't mean that the braves don't have these good vibes like they obviously are a fantastic team they obviously have a lot of experienced veterans that gel well together and should perform at a high level in the playoffs so there is still some noise to it like i i'm still pretty firmly believe even this with this run that if you ran the simulation a hundred times or a thousand times or whatever the braves advance further than the Phillies on average. They're a better team, I think, even, you know, given some of the hits they've taken to their rotation coming into the postseason here. But I think the gap between playoff performance between those two teams gets narrowed a little bit compared to just, you know, looking at the gap between them in the regular season. I think the Phillies have something. I think the Astros clearly, they're good at this. Like, Yes, we're still dealing with a relatively small sample size, because even if it is the last seven or eight postseasons, that's still only a handful of games in each of those years and different rosters, different management, all of that. But I still I feel pretty confident saying the Astros know what they're doing here from an organizational level, from a player level, from a managerial level, like top to bottom. They all come in with this mindset that like, this is what we play for. Right. And you even saw it in 2020 when they had a 500 season in the weird fluky shortened season that year. And then they went to the playoffs and just, it was it was just back to being the Astros again. Every time you think the Astros are taking a step back, they make the playoffs and then it's the same team firing on all cylinders once again. And so I think there's something to that again, not saying that other teams like the Braves or the Rangers have shown a lot of fight, or even like you said, how plucky the D backs have been, not saying that they don't have any of these it factors, but I think there is a special something in the playoffs that is intangible and is meaningful to the success of some of these teams and you know it it helps recontextualize some of the moves that do and don't get made at at the trade deadline or in the off season. you know if a team has a real feeling that like this guy can be an it factor in the postseason that might move the needle on yes we'll throw in that extra prospect even if it you know pushes the trade a little bit lopsided we think it's worth it because we think this guy could be this game changer for us in the postseason and obviously we have that built into our values already but seeing it live in real time with teams like the Phillies like it makes it it makes it understandable that some teams would value that postseason potential higher than others and push an extra chip in and make it an overpay even with our October bonus and you think of a contract like Nick Castellanos or Kyle Schwarber, which both looked very, under, or very underwater contracts, very overpaid from the minute they were signed. Who cares about that right now? They're doing exactly <laughs> what they need them to do here in the playoffs. Kyle Schwarber hits a home run or two every day, and he's carrying the team. And so, yeah, who cares if they spent a few bucks extra yeah. and the, the regular season performance isn't where you'd want it to be. They're performing when it counts. So. There's my uh, soapbox about how uh, all that matters in baseball is grit and team culture and <laughs> and clutch. Uh, back to you, John.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, we haven't really talked too much about the pitching, but um, just some savvy trades that you can point out that are having an, a, an effect now on the postseason. So Jordan Montgomery was a pickup for the Rangers at the deadline. And the fact that he's pitching so well, he got on a roll towards the in the second of the season and he's really sort of pitching with a lot of confidence um he's never been known as like a power pitcher with super great stuff but he knows how to pitch and that's coming in handy and the other sort of obvious question i mean uh cliche here is you know the longer you can keep your starter in the more it saves your bullpen because you gotta use your bullpen so much in these games as you can see you know time and again they're bringing out the ginkles and the solve franks and everybody you know it's like it's a bullpen game almost every day so um so the fact that um you know Jordan Montgomery was a savvy pickup for the Rangers is starting to pay dividends, not just with keeping them in the game, but also saving their bullpen to some degree when they need it. And the same could be true of Verlander for uh, the Astros. And when that trade happened, as we know, that that trade was pretty much dead on with our model. Uh, But there's an extra something that he always seems to bring in the postseason. So they're benefiting from that as well for the same reason, saving the bullpen a little bit too.
0: Yeah. And there's been so much discussion about, the role of starting pitching in the postseason and plenty of debate on did this guy get pulled too early did this guy get left in too late and I think Mike Petriello on Twitter has done a good job of, of pointing out all of the times when a guy like Verlander or Gallon or uh, who was it that Verlander was going against in that game uh, maybe it'll come to me um I think it was Montgomery, actually. Yeah, it was Montgomery, Verlander, Mm -hmm. and Gallen. Each of the three of them got left in for the third time through and gave up runs right away. And, you know, that's somewhat anecdotal evidence, small sample, whatever. But the whole point is that over a large sample, yeah, these guys take a step back their third time through the lineup, even the best of the best. And it's just a matter of how much of a step back that is. And if you're going to risk that compared to, you know, the benefit of saving some arms from the bullpen. And so I think, you know, the debate of whether the starter starting pitcher should go five or six innings or be pushed and try and get that seventh or eighth inning when they're quote-unquote rolling that's never going to end and that's not necessarily a debate I'm too interested in because it seems like the correct answer has kind of already been determined on that one um but what I think is really interesting watching a team like the D-backs and and obviously this isn't the way that they planned on this season going where you know they only have two reliable starting pitchers in Zach Gallen and Merrill Kelly. And then after that, it's really just, I don't know. we'll, we'll see what Brandon Fock can do for us, and then we'll try and piece together a game four. But I think my main takeaway from that and from what we've seen from even even the Astros at times, even the Rangers at times, even the Phillies at times, and some of the eliminated teams, is you know, obviously starting pitching is important in the playoffs, obviously. You're going to have to trust everyone on your pitching staff to get important outs at some point in the series. I think it's just so important to have guys who can at least get through a lineup a couple times that can at least get through five innings, even calling that like the bare minimum expectation because it really throws a wrench into the whole series and has this domino effect playing all these high leverage innings back to back when you have to have a bullpen game. And even if you win it like the D-backs did, you see the next night how it, Impacted them in Game Five. You know they they won the bullpen game Game Four. It all went perfectly according to plan. Their bullpen was phenomenal that game. But then they go to Game Five, and because everyone's so taxed, they're really relying on a lot from Zach Gallen, and they push him through that sixth inning that they probably shouldn't have tried to push him through. Like he he was getting to that third time through the order, and his splits are particularly bad a third time through the order. If all else was equal, if their bullpen was fresh, they might have pulled him there. And I think you saw exactly what happened. He he gave up a couple home runs, and suddenly the game was out of reach for them, especially going against a guy as dominant as Zach Wheeler was that night. So that's one of my biggest takeaways from these remaining teams is, you know, you're you're never going to have a rotation full of guys who are going to go seven, eight innings each time out there, but there is a lot of value to be had of at least getting five innings from each starter and not relying on a complete bullpen day in the postseason.
1: Yeah, totally
0: agree. Uh, are there any of the eliminated teams that you'd like to take another look at here? I know we mentioned, um, I actually don't know which ones we covered last time, but the Marlins didn't go anywhere. <laughs> um, the Braves, a really surprising early exit. Uh, the Rays had kind of a a downfall second half of their season and then stumbled into the playoffs. and fell flat there the orioles not making as many deadline additions as they maybe could have and being a first round exit um other teams i haven't named yet blue jays twins uh brewers is there anything in particular you want to jump on here um
1: i think the brewers are the most interesting one because they're kind of at the precipice you know did their window just end um because woodruff is now out with an injury and we'll talk about that Burns has one year left on his contract. Uh, who knows if they're going to keep uh, Craig Council as manager in the fold because his contract just ended and maybe a lot of speculation about him going to the Mets. So, like, you get the feeling that mm, things may be turning there. They may have to take a step back a little bit. So I wonder about that team the most. Um, I mean, most of the other ones, you can kind of tell. The Rays are going to con- keep doing their thing. They got, you know, hammered by injuries. Um Orioles are up and coming, really strong team, built from the ground up. So, you know, they're going to be even better next year, I would imagine. So uh, the Twins are always just sort of like there, you know, winning a weak central, and they're good enough. But they need to, I think, do some soul searching to see how they can take that next step and be great. Because it seems like they've been stuck in this sort of slightly above average pattern for years now. So those are my initial comments.
0: Yeah, I think... You're right that the Brewers are maybe the most interesting of that group. Um, The Twins do stand out to me, though, because they have some decisions to make this offseason. They had a, I believe it was a franchise high payroll last year, and they're one of those Bally teams that might be impacted by all of the nonsense going on there. So it's it's possible that they'll need to scale back payroll a bit, or at least won't be able to expand it. And they are losing Sonny Gray and Kenta Maeda to free agency this year. And, and there have already been reports that they're interested in bringing those guys back. But if other guys are getting more expensive at the same time, then how do they make that happen? How do they also upgrade the team where it needs to happen? There's been some early speculation. Both Jorge Polanco and Max Kepler have club options in the, I think, 10000000 million-ish range for each of them. And there's speculation on both of those guys as trade candidates because they are pretty stacked on young infielders and outfielders. You know, they still need to kind of sift through that mix and feel and feel out who's going to be their guy in some of these spots. You know, it was another kind of lost year for Alex Kiriloff and Trevor Larnach in a lot of ways. And Matt Walner burst onto the scene. But is he going to keep it going? And can we really hand the everyday second base job to Edward Houlihan? Is he a good enough defender? And, and a lot of other questions. You know, when does Brooks Lee come up? Um. Things like that. And so there's going to be a lot of speculation this offseason over whether they would trade Kepler and Polanco. And you know if they do, especially with how starved the free agent market is for hitting, those two guys are going to be really attractive. So I think they're a team to keep an eye on. They have a, a few different directions they could go because, you know, Kepler's been a trade candidate for them for the past two or three years. And they've kept him this far. So who's to say they won't do it again? Um, so they're they're interesting to me. The Blue Jays are a little bit interesting just because they seem like they're kind of stuck in this rut a little bit. Um, and obviously, there was such a down year from Vladdy, but their they're... clock is ticking a little bit with both Vladdy and Bichette getting closer to free agency and their rotation isn't getting any younger. And what happened with Alec Manoa this season was a huge step back from that front from a longer term perspective. So they're kind of interesting. Uh, you're right that the Orioles are going to just keep rolling the way that they have been but at some point push comes to shove right at some point they're running out of spots for these talented young players yeah where are they gonna go right are they gonna actually push some chips in
1: yeah exactly there's probably a consolidation trade or two coming from them to kind of get you know package a couple of you know mid prospects for um, you know a decent starter or somebody who can kind of help them take to take them to the next level and to your point about Vladdy, I just wanted to point out, um, he's not, doesn't have any surplus value left. I mean, he's got, yeah, he's, he's got, he's getting very expensive. I think we talked about this in the last epi- uh, episode, um, but yeah, he's pretty much gonna about to get paid what he's worth. So uh, I'm just, I found that really interesting when we were the numbers in our most recent update and by the way we did recent do a recent update i forgot to mention that top of the show you might have noticed that um so yeah vladdy has very little surplus value left which is very interesting to me because he's always had he used to have a bunch and then it's been grinding down slowly but surely coming off a down year even more so so anyway thought that was interesting
0: yeah definitely and it's at some point, push is going to come to shove in that organization, and it's it's kind of a Cody Bellinger case almost, where, yeah, he was an MVP type guy, but yeah. if he continues down the path that he's on, he's going to be non-tender. That's just kind of the, the truth of it.
1: And you can't really say, um, you know, there's, I mean his sole swing was off right and if he can't if he has a down year offensively then what have you got you got a bad first baseman because he's a bad first baseman let's be honest so i mean there's nothing there's not really a saving characteristic there if he can't hit you know and that's what it's about
0: right right exactly um i guess the only teams we haven't really touched on too extensively i, I think i'm with you the rays are just going to keep doing the Rays, i don't think this is i don't think they're in need of any organizational overhaul or anything like that they've they had a disappointing second half for a number of on and off field reasons but they're the Rays. you expect them to make a few changes shuffle guys around pick up some more scrap heap robert stevenson jake diekman types and, and make it all work um the braves i don't think you expect too much change there although we will get into one uh what one hit they've already taken for the 2024 season but with how loaded that roster and your is you're gonna just expect them to retool and come back into it and then the Dodgers the Dodgers the only team we haven't really mentioned yet on in this discussion I think they're really interesting because last season was last offseason was already kind of a turning point for them they played it a lot more muted a lot more safe than they normally would it seemed like they were trying to stay under the luxury tax and then they didn't for some reason, they pushed over to get Miguel Rojas, and it was just kind of an up and down year. They ended up being as strong as anybody expected, probably stronger than a lot of people expected, um, especially the people that, like myself, that were kind of leaning towards the Padres to win that division. But they still eke it out, they still win the division, and then they just completely melt in the postseason. And who knows what Clayton Kershaw's future is looking like. There's questions with Julio Urias for off-field reasons. There's, and he's, he's a pending free agent anyway, even if there weren't those off-field concerns with him. And and so there's, there's reasons to have questions about the Dodgers as well and whatever direction they're going to take next. And, and it's, it's the Dodgers. They're a team that has earned the benefit of the doubt more than once through, like they're, they have proven time and time again that they can answer these questions and, and bring up the next wave of kids and make the trades and signings that they need to to be a powerhouse year after year. But how safe is Dave Roberts' job? And how confident do we really feel that they're going to just be the Dodgers year in and year out? Like, it has
1: to end at some point, right? Yeah, and and there was something different about the Dodgers. Something got exposed. And yes, you can point to the injuries... Um. yes, you can point to the lack of a shortstop since Seager left because, you know, <laughs> they haven't really, you know, Miguel Rojas and Ahmed Rosario and Gavin Lux got injured. Like, there's been some holes, you know, not just there, but a couple of the places too. Like, their usual sort of mix-and-match formula wasn't quite gelling this year. And then you had Clayton Kershaw, who looks done to me, and he may be thinking about retiring. And, you know, the pitching had injuries, and Arias has his problems, and he's probably gone. So, like... There's some holes here, so they got some work to do, definitely. And but uh, not that they need like too much soul searching because they're still the envy of, of baseball because they have such a good model for like, you know, bubbling up kids from the farm and and having some finances to sign free agents and mixing and matching, and you know, signing guys to extension. So they've got it all working for the most part. But it didn't quite. There was some gum in the works this year, you know, and so they got to get that gum out and figure out how to fix it a little bit this year
0: right definitely we will have to see how that goes if it involves one shohei otani or, or a splash of yeah. that like or if, if we'll yeah. have to see what they decide to do and then the the one team we haven't really gotten to here is the marlins but that's okay we will circle back to them later in this episode for uh maybe not the best reasons but we'll we'll talk about them more um i do want to touch on these two pretty significant injuries that uh, we learned about the full extent of in the past couple of weeks um Brandon Woodruff for the Brewers he's gonna miss most of 2024 after undergoing shoulder surgery that was kind of out of nowhere it was just his last start of the season he wasn't he wasn't throwing as hard I don't think and then he threw a bullpen session before the wild card round said he wasn't feeling it it, it just wasn't feeling right he was placed on the injured list and not on the roster for that round. And then all of a sudden, shoulder surgery. uh, Repair the anterior capsule in his right shoulder. And that's a big blow for the Brewers and for Woodruff. This was going to be his walk year in 2024. And he was, you know, another Brandon Woodruff season, he was going to get paid really handsomely (laughs) in 2025, hitting the market as, you know, early 30s, really solid number two, number three starter. And now it's a big question mark. And so there's a few different ways this can go now. It's possible he misses the first chunk of 2024, comes back for the last month or two, looks like the same guy as before, and then, you know, he's still an attractive free agent. There is a chance there's a setback and he hits the free agent market injured. And then there's also room here for a Tyler Glassnow type deal where his Tommy John surgery was also very poorly timed as far as a free agency standpoint. And so it was mutually beneficial for him and for the Rays to agree to this heavily backloaded contract to give him time to rehab with the team and then have another full season under his belt with that team. And it, it costs him a free agent year, but it gives him another chance to really establish himself as back healthy and performing well before he actually hits free agency. So I wonder if there's an opportunity for that with the Brewers and Woodruff. I think because it's a shoulder that makes it a little bit dicier as well. Um, but just really, really unfortunate news for them. And, and like you were saying earlier, like they already have kind of a cloudy picture this off season. They could go a couple different ways. They are kind of on the bubble. This doesn't help that at all. And it's uh, it's it's unfortunate, especially given how long people have been talking about whether they would trade a Burns or a Woodruff or a Peralta. And now you're looking at Burns as a year away from free agency and he's going to be expensive. And Woodruff is a year away from free agency, and he's probably not going to pitch next year. So mm-hmm. it seems like overnight almost the the trade value of that starting rotation has evaporated.
1: Yeah, uh, first of all, I really feel bad for Woodruff. <laughs> it's just a heavy, you know, coming in his walk year. So he's going to, you know, hopefully he recovers well. But that particular injury also is kind of not good it's not in a good place it's not your typical tommy john back again in 12 to 18 months it's like that's more serious than that and not a lot of guys have come back the same from that so what his future looks like is is very cloudy so i feel bad for him um as for the brewers yeah we talked about that and the, the okay so what do you got pitching wise you have burns in his last year you've got peralta on a still going on a ridiculously keep Cheap contract, but he's been in kind of in and out. Sometimes he's 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 injured, sometimes he's healthy, and sometimes he's a great starter, and sometimes he's not. So, but he's still getting your a lot of bang for the buck because he's very talented. So, let's say you have good Peralta and good Burns. Burns wasn't quite as good this year as he has been in the past, but let's say you have good Burns and good Peralta. You still still got at least three more rate, rotation slots to fill, right? And maybe Ashby's coming back, maybe. So you figure maybe that's a third what else you got and then how much money you're going to spend on that um, rotation, you know? So, and there's not a lot of pitching depth in their farm. They've got a bunch of outfielders. So you figure, okay, maybe, maybe they make some trades, you know, um, of you know, some, some of their game. So, and then, Oh, by the way, Willie Adamas is in his last year of arbitration and getting expensive. And so my, I, you know, <laughs> I just got a funny feeling. They're, they're, they're going to go the other direction because it's probably too expensive. and may not be worth it to try to build, you know, throw good money after on top of that when they didn't get that far in the beginning. So and maybe keep some of the like their best young prospects and build on those guys for the next one. Just I feel like they're going to retool. It's just it seems like like that's the way to go.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've seen teams in this position hold on longer than they should and and cling to hope and then ultimately have to kind of accept defeat at the deadline and then get less than they would have gotten for some of these guys. And I think the Brewers are smarter than that. And especially with some of the turnover, especially if they lose counsel here, I think it just makes sense to say we gave it a good ride, but we can't keep pushing for 83 wins and and hoping to make it through the playoffs with this core in place. You know, the clock is ticking on guys. We do have exciting young players in place. We're not going to tear this thing to the ground and take another five years to get into the playoffs, but like you said, it's time to retool. You know, Corbin Burns probably isn't going to lead the Brewers to a World Series next year, and he probably isn't going to be extended, so let's make the tough decision now and hopefully it sets us up for success two or three years from now when a guy like Jackson Chorio is hitting his stride and Sal Frelick is making an impact and and guys like that. So I think they're a smart organization that will follow the kind of Billy Bean, like rather trade a guy too early than too late kind of idea. And unfortunately, you know, it's a freak injury. You couldn't really see it coming, but they ended up on the too late side of things with Woodruff and I guess that could just be a reminder for them and and kind of a wake up call and let's not make that same mistake with a guy like Burns.
1: Yeah, so Burns has uh, about thirty million dollars in surplus according to our model. So you're gonna get some good good package back for him. He's only gonna be making fifteen in salary. So, um, yeah, <laughs> and you know there's the QO draft pick that, in whoever, depending on the team that that ultimately acquires him, if such a scenario passes out, then you would also get the benefit of a kibo draft pick at the end of the day or resign him. So uh, I think he's attractive as a, as a trade candidate, uh, starting pitching, you know, there's always more demand than supply for starting pitching. So I think they should strike while the iron is hot there.
0: Yeah. You could, you could just see some sort of a big mega deal with the Dodgers for both Burns and Adamas and maybe you gotta, you gotta iron yeah. out some kinks there. Maybe there's not a natural, you know, trade pitching for, for those guys fit but maybe a three-team deal or something i think that 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 pair has been speculated for the dodgers going back to the Lux injury Mm. but Lux is coming Um,
1: back so now true you know maybe put him at second you know there's some ways to go here
0: right um moving over to another team and another injury here i i kind of alluded to earlier similar injury different situation kyle wright undergoes shoulder surgery and he's also going to miss the 2024 season um He had a really strong year for the Braves uh, in 2022, and it looked like this is a former first-round pick finally breaking out. And then this year was a complete loss season. He was pretty bad, and he was pretty injured, and then he finishes the season with this substantial injury that's also going to knock him out for next year. So it's really unfortunate. It, he's going to come back in 2025, not really having a whole lot under his belt and shoulder injuries are always scary. Luckily, at least from the brave side of things, he's not necessarily, you know, he wasn't expected to factor into their team's future, the same extent that Woodruff was for the Brewers, but it is still a, a notable loss for them. And it is still a notable bummer for Wright, where it looked like he, like I said, like he, like he had finally put it together and, and had this kind of, late bloom as a former first round pick and now it's kind of quickly getting the rug pulled out from under him so just again a bummer and especially anytime someone says the word shoulder that's an extra alarm bell in your mind because those don't always go well
1: no and i alluded to that earlier with woodruff it's the torn capsule thing is particularly bad according to the experts that i read so yeah not looking good there
0: on on the one bright side for them, for the Braves at least, it's going to be a fairly decent free agent class for starting pitchers. There, there's going to be a lot of options there, and you know the Braves haven't necessarily been aggressive with spending and free agency in recent years, but given the depth of the class, they should be at least able to find a mid to back end arm to fill those innings without too much trouble and you know, part of one of the benefits of how they've locked up all of these guys to below market deals is a you know they're below market deals so they have a little bit of room to make some of these free agent additions and b they have total cost certainty of pretty much everyone on their roster they know exactly what payroll is going to look like in each year for the most part so they can really plan these things out in a way that a lot of teams can't
1: yeah and you know it reminds me of sort of uh, one sort of sneaky, interesting point is that Otani, everyone thinks, oh, yeah, he's, he's the big name in the free agent market this year. But remember, he's not pitching in 2024. So for a lot of teams who need pitching, it creates a bit of a dilemma. Like, are you going to go – because you don't – it doesn't make sense to go for a ton- – if, you re- if your goal is to get to the next level and win the World Series in 2024 with pitching – Otani's not going to help you with that, right? I' will help you with the bat but I'm pitching. Down the road, he can help with pitching, presumably. But um, you've got to look at the other guys, is my point, if you want starting pitching help for 2024.
0: Right, good point. Not not necessarily that Shohei Otani was going to the Braves or anything. Uh, not that it no, would surprise no, not, not me not either with, uh, <laughs> with Alex Anthopoulos of it all. And he he works so quietly and, and makes these big moves with no warning whatsoever. So not that it would shock me as much as it might have shocked me a couple of years ago now that we kind of know Anthopolis' deal here, but mm-hmm. I, I I don't think he's high on... I don't think they're high on his list of likely landing spots. Let's put it right. that way.
1: Yeah.
0: Um. Let's shift behind the plate for two real quick hits. Uh. The Reds re-signed catcher Luke Maley to a one-year deal with the club option for 2025, $3.5 $3. million guarantee. Good money, for you, Luke. Luke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just one of those bounce-around-the-league strong defensive reputation clubhouse guy etc etc um so good for him good for them uh not much else to say there um and then one other quick note i wanted to bring up on an earlier episode we talked about how the angels placed max stassi on the restricted list near the end of the year and and they said he was healthy but dealing with some family issues and we pointed out on on this episode or on this podcast how that saved him a few bucks because he doesn't get paid on the restricted list. And so we were wondering a little bit like, Hey, is this like a phantom IL phantom restricted list kind of thing so that they can try their best to sneak under the luxury tax. Uh, It doesn't seem like it. He shared this past week about some of the family issues that have been going on. Apparently his baby son was born three months early, weighing like a pound and a half. So they've been, dealing with that and and understandably uh, maybe can't focus on baseball for the Los Angeles angels while, while that's happening. So wishing all the best for them and, and hope it seems like things are going about as well as they could be given everything, how, how concerning of a situation that is and how scary that is, but hoping it continues to, to trend in the right direction there for them. Agreed. Okay. Shifting back to baseball a little bit. Let's talk about some of the other big news. You know, it's been kind of surprising. There's been a lot of loud news from the eliminated playoff teams or from teams that never made the playoffs. Like, I feel like usually they keep things quiet during October. Usually, you know, there's some, you hear about some of the coaching merry-go-round and some of the front office stuff, but it feels like it's been particularly dramatic this month. Uh, maybe, Maybe I'm just misreading that, but... Big piece of news is that the Marlins and Kim Ng parted ways. And this was really a shock, really unexpected. Uh, Ng had a mutual option for 2024, and the club exercised it, but Ng declined it. And after this broke, more reporting showed that there was a pretty substantial difference of opinion between Ng and owner Bruce Sherman. probably most significant in that dis- this disagreement misunderstanding was that sherman wanted to hire a head of baseball ops to work above kim Ng, which given how you know how hard kim Ng has had to work to get to the spot that she's been in and how successful the season was and you know how much of that could directly be attributed to some smart moves on her part that's just a slap in the face um and i I think it's pretty understandable why she would walk away from that situation after being told, "Hey, we're not gonna extend your contract right now. you're gonna be kind of a a sitting duck for this year. Oh, and also we wanna hire someone to be your boss, and you're gonna lose some autonomy and have have to report to someone and and all the moves go through them so there were some other bits and pieces here you know there's kind of an you know disagreements on specific personnel and approach and a whole lot of details to this like a whole lot to unpack but that seems like it was the biggest indicator that this is just not a good relationship and it was no longer going to work going forward and so Kimming declined her side of the option and she is now free to work wherever she chooses although there was a report that came out that she might just take a year off and return to the game after the 2024 season and and once she does I'm sure there will be plenty of teams lining up to hire her. So what was your initial reaction to this and what is next for for both the Marlins and Kimming?
1: My initial reaction was not good. And look, this, she's done a great job there. She made some I mean we can tell just by looking at our model. She did great, and, you know, at the deadline this past year, she built a winning team, um, you know, made some savvy um, you know, a lot of savvy moves. A couple of clunkers. Like, I can Garcia didn't turn out so well. But, you know, for the most part, she's... Segura didn't turn out so well. But for the most part, she's done well. And she's built a team from kind of a losing team to a winning team, which is exactly what you want your your head of your front office to do. And she did it in, you know, male-dominated culture. So kudos to her for doing that. And only to find that after doing all of that, um, she is insulted by... You know the owner saying, "Yeah, well, yeah, we're going to hire a number one above you. You're it's effectively demoting you after a great job." I cannot, I cannot, and it, it, that doesn't sit well with me at all. And and you know, and I don't know Bruce Sherman at all, but but you know the fact that you know she's now gone. Dark Jeter left a couple years ago under uh, curious situation circumstances. Again, at some point you have to look at you know, if there's high turnover, the problem is not them, it's you. So I think this, Bruce Sherman's going to have to do some soul searching here because if he's going to continue to own the team, he's, he's you know, he may continue to be a problem. Just like Artie Marino with the Angels and, you know, we've talked about some other owners that are (laughs) not ideal. Um, So I think that might, which leads to my larger point, which is if he's the problem, who's going to take that job and how's it going to go for them? Now, the good news is you know, because Ing kind of ch- changed the culture in the team, it's in a better place than it was a couple of years ago. So whoever steps in has a better situation to work with. Um, I did note that they also fired their uh, farm director, of, uh, director of amateur, amateur scouting. Um, and I actually thought that was OK, because them, their first round draft picks in the last couple of years have not been great. And maybe that hurt Eng with in the owner's mind as well. Um, But there have been some – if you look at their front uh, first rounders in the last three, four years, they've all kind of been busted. Uh, they're not totally busted yet because it's still year early for some of these, but they're not considered top prospects. And so they could have done a better job on that front. So the guy who's responsible for that is gone. Um, so that's the one thing I would say is, okay, fair. Um, but in general, we're talking about a lot of dysfunction there, and I don't know who's going to step into that role. You know you probably need somebody who can manage up really well um because I mean that's the case with a lot of these jobs and a lot of these sort of owners with big egos um that's probably the hardest part of the job I'm guessing um, because they can be meddlesome and even the best of them they put together a plan and they execute on the plan like it' dead for the most part. You know, you're know, you still going to have a problem because the owner is too meddlesome and has a big ego or whatever. So I think that's that's the problem there. And I, I wish luck to whoever takes that job. And for Kimming, I think she did a good job. And I know Boston was interested, in her to your point, she might just be like, I'm going to take a break for a year. <laughs> Thank you for her. Because I think the demand will still be there a year from now. So, you know, she's fine.
0: Right. And to, to put a couple names to that item you had about the the scouting director, I believe mm-hmm. it was. Yeah. Um, that That's players like J.J. Bleday, where yeah. he hasn't worked out, or Khalil Watson was traded away and has had a bunch of off-field issues and hasn't right. performed on the field either. And Jacob Berry, I think he was their 2022 first-round mm-hmm. pick. Uh, he's been a bust so far. Again, early going, but... Uh, and, and the name here, I'm, I'm researching on the fly here, <laughs> amateur scouting director, DJ... Oh, goodness, how do you say this name? S V I H uh, L I K S Svilik, sure. um, But, and it's reasonable on both sides, I think, here, where all of those hitters, especially those early round hitters, yeah, for the most part, they've struggled, and those haven't looked like the smartest picks. But then you look on the other side of it, they're they've had a lot of, pitching talent come from the draft in the recent handful of years and that's kind of been yeah. the backbone of the organization in the last handful of years and so it's you know there's two sides to every coin where it wasn't a clear job of wow they just haven't gotten anything from the draft it was more so you know they're missing on the most valuable picks but they're still getting value elsewhere and i it seems i guess that ing was more likely to or preferred to try and improve the issue, you know, try and improve the the lack of success on the hitters and keep the person who she trusted to continue to select good pitchers and help develop good pitchers versus rolling the dice with someone new entirely and whoops, now you lost out on all of it potentially and the pitching that's been the backbone that pipeline shuts down and now your organization's in a real tough spot um i think the other interesting thing here is and and i've been wrong before i could be wrong about this it really seems like whoever takes this job is like in the short term doomed to fail it's i i think it's very unlikely that the 2024 marlins are as good as or better than the 2023 marlins just because the 2023 marlins really overperformed their peripherals they really overperformed their run differential it was way negative but they made the playoffs anyway with a bunch of one run wins and we just know that that stuff is typically pretty fluky and you look on the farm they don't really have a bunch of reinforcements knocking the door down you know they're going to get max meyer back from injury but what does he look like and you'd hope for a bounce back from a trevor rogers but you don't know and then on the flip side they're going to Lose Sandy Alcantara. I guess they already have lost Sandy Alcantara. He's not going to be a factor for mm-hmm. them in 2024, and for a team that already didn't have much wiggle room for for things to go wrong, that's a huge blow. So you don't really expect them to spend big in free agency, and because of some of those issues we've discussed, you know, a name like Jacob Berry isn't going to bring you back a ton in a trade. So. I, I think next year is not going to go very well for them. Again, I could be wrong. It's still pretty early. They still have a whole offseason to try and put something together. But I think most people across baseball should be able to identify that from the outside as well. Identify, like you were saying, that maybe there's a meddlesome owner in here in play here. And a lot of things went right for the Marlins in 2023 that are not guaranteed to go right for them in 2024. And that might make it a pretty unattractive job. I don't think some of the biggest, most desirable names are going to be lining up to interview there because they're, like I said, they're kind of doomed to fail in at least that first year. Like I think they're pretty unlikely to make the playoffs. And given the larger narrative at play here of, wow, they let Ingo and this is who they brought in and, and they just stunk up the bed and, and missed the playoffs. Wow. What a disaster. I miss Kim Ng. Like, That narrative is just sitting there ready to happen. Yeah, (laughs) and totally. I don't think people are going to be lining up to take that job. Now, on the flip side, it makes it an opportunity for someone who's maybe trying to make a name for themselves. We've talked about this a bit with things like the Tiger's job or the Rockies, where, yes, it's a dysfunctional situation and there's a whole lot of reasons not to like it, but... For someone who hasn't had a chance to establish themselves yet, maybe that's an opportunity for them. And if they can go in there and fix things and say, I was the guy who revived the Marlins after all of X, Y, and Z happened, then that's something to hang your hat on and something to really kind of balloon into a a full career as a highly regarded front office executive. Um, But that is kind of a long shot, I would say. Yeah. that's, That's really hoping for like the best potential outcome there.
1: Yeah, and the other issue, this has been reported with the Open Boston job. Like, there are not that many candidates. They want a president of baseball operations, and so do the Marlins. And they've been scouring the market and interviewing some folks, but no, either nobody wants it or there's not really any obvious candidates. There's a couple of emerged. That may be Thad Levine from the Twins, like a, a good number two that's established this, uh, themselves. So, like, there's... The, there's a very slim sort of pool of candidates who could take the number one job, so that's problem number one. Problem number two is, is it to your point, doomed for failure in both Boston and Miami because Boston has its issues and they keep going through these these guys and they keep firing them and they, you know, so like, uh, do I want that job if I'm at the, beat, I don't know. So and probably even worse with the with the Marlins. So. I think my point is, it's going to be even tougher for the Marlins to get a president of baseball operations, knowing that the pool is already shallow and, you know, even the Red Sox can't find a guy. So how how could the Marlins find somebody? So it's tough.
0: Yeah, that's a great opportunity to transition into the Red Sox. You mentioned earlier that Kimming declined to interview for them. A a full-ish list from Chris Cotillo. This is a couple days ago, so it's possible there's a couple missing here, but... Kim Ng, Sam Fold, Brandon Gomes, James Click, Derek Falvey, Mike Hill, and John Daniels have all taken themselves out of the mix here, either declined to interview or after the interview withdrew their name from contention. And that—that's a lot of big names that are the types that you would expect to be, you know, front of mind for a job like this, especially in Boston, and given that some of You know, at a glance, there's a lot of resources in Boston. They have good young players. There's a lot of opportunity. It's a big market that should be a desirable job. And that many big names have already taken themselves out of the mix, and that doesn't even count. Also listed here, Raquel Ferreira, who is their, I believe she's one of their assistant GMs, um, who cited family reasons as as Mm -hmm. not wanting to uh, interview for that top job. And then Mike Hazen and Emil Saadeh, uh, who are two of the top executives in Arizona who, rather than entertain this option, uh, even though it looked like it was going to be available pretty early to them, they instead decided to uh, sign extensions and remain with the D backs. And then comparing that list to the list of candidates who are still in the mix Craig Breslow, Gabe Kapler, Neil Huntington, dad Levine, Eddie Romero, Paul Taboni, and Mike Groupman. A few of those are names I Will admit to not knowing, but the few that I do know, you know, there's a Thad Levine where that's he seems like a pretty strong choice. He seems like he's pretty highly regarded, and one of these days he'll be able to run an organization himself and not be kind of underneath Falvey and anybody be able to like spread his wings a little bit in that way. But Gabe Kapler is seems like a a, a reach a little bit. I know he does have a front office past, but I don't know about that. And Craig Breslow, it seems like a big leap for him. And, and I know he's also highly regarded and viewed as just a smart baseball person, but I don't know. I, I don't mean any disrespect to any of those names, especially the ones that I don't necessarily know as well, but it seems like they're starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel. And as I say that, it sounds very mean, uh, but uh, yeah, I think it's it true. In a slightly
1: but, different way, I get your point yeah. though.
0: <laughs> yeah. I guess what I'm trying to say is they've kind of already exhausted all of the most attractive yeah. options here and not not in the sense that they interview these people and decided they weren't the right fit the opposite they decided that this job was not the right fit for them and that should be a red flag
1: yeah and so yeah So the point is there aren't that many qualified candidates for that president of baseball operations job either in boston or miami which is odd when you think about it because it's like a dream job right but you have to have it has to be the exact combination of the person with the perfect qualifications matched up with, you know, the team's pre- the team's owner and everybody else get along and everything, but, you know, and a track record of accomplishment, blah, 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 you know, and those are hard to find. And there's not like a... Like a pool out, like we we all know who, who is there, right? It's not like it's not magic. Like, oh, let's hire a an agency to go find them. You already know who works for every team. There's only thirty teams, and you know who's available. So, like, that's it. That's the pool. And
0: I think in Boston, a lot of it, and I mean, I think this applies to Miami as well. But a lot of it's the power dynamic that you're expecting this person to step into, where. Like we were saying with Miami, you know, maybe there's a meddlesome owner at play when it comes to the feud that we just saw between Sherman and Ng. And then in Boston, you kind of know that Alex Cora is running the show there. And it's it's been pretty publicly reported that he's a really significant figure for them in a way that the manager isn't always when it comes to these kind of front office type decisions. And so between that, between john henry you know there's there's kind of this sense that he's been penny pinching in recent years he's not fully flexing the the red Sox payroll might that he could be and you know they'll still make a splash for a yoshida or a story but you wouldn't necessarily expect them to be front of the line for an otani or or even a yamamoto so what is the appeal then you know if you're going to be coming into a spot where you're you're technically number one in the baseball ops department but your boss the owner is very has his ear very close to Alex Cora's mouth and you're gonna have to be in lockstep with Cora or otherwise it's gonna cause problems from from day one and you might not have all those resources that you should have available to you. You might have budgetary constraints and have to kind of work under those limitations with the the heavy expectations that come with running this team and with everybody comparing you to how a bloom ran the team. So there's a lot, you know, a lot of the things on the surface with that Red Sox job that seemed like they should make it attractive. There's just as many, when you, when you look at it a little bit closer of like, Hmm, That would give, you know, one of these few top candidates that are out there, it would give them some pause in taking this job.
1: You, well, yeah, so it's it's beginning to look kind of Shakespearean to me. Like, there's a Lady Macbeth kind of vibe going on with Cora and the owner, and like, what is what is he whispering? to Like that that you know, who wants to step into that? Um, so you get it, you know, Cora clearly does well managing up, but then whoever takes that top job, it's like, okay, wait, that's my job. You're supposed to be managing the field, and so they got to sort that out as well as deal with the owner. And oh, by the way, that owner has fired every single person in this job you know perhaps prematurely in the case of bloom um so like are you set up to success so that's there's a whole bunch of thorny issues there yeah and at least
0: at least going for the red Sox job is they have a much stronger core in place i would say than the marlins do and you know rafael devers is locked up long term and he's maybe not you know, he's he's not one of the five or ten best players in the game, but he's very, very good and a very consistent, reliable player to have kinda of anchoring your lineup. So he's a strong start and you know, Jaron Duran broke out last year and looks like their leadoff guy, Yoshida, his defense hasn't been there, but he's at least looking like a solid hitter. He's at least a, a fearsome bat in the top half of that lineup. Um Christian Casas is coming into his own on the farm. You have Marcelo Meyer, you have Nick York, you have, you know, they might've struck gold with guys like Roman Anthony and Miguel Blyce in the lower minors. There's a lot to like there. They have a lot of the pieces in place and really just need somebody to make that push, make it click. Like you, you almost look at it and say like, this is an opportunity for a Dombrowski type to come in and push the right buttons in a few different spots, you know, make, the one or two aggressive trades with a couple of prospects that you're not married to, make the free agent push for those two starters that you really do like and think will solidify this rotation. And then wait for Meyer to come up, wait for Sedan Rafaela to make his impact in the big leagues and boom, it's a it's a championship caliber team. Like from that perspective at least, you can see the appeal of the job, but it seems like in recent years there there there's more awareness to some of the other factors at play i think maybe the angels can be exhibit a a test case a whatever you want to call it of what how, how damaging a meddlesome owner can really be to an organization even when everything else like the stars are aligned in every other way and I don't mean to blame Artie Moreno entirely for all of the Angels' misfortunes during the Trout and Otani era and and how disastrous that all went. There was a lot else at play there, and, you know, we could do a whole podcast episode about that. But it's pretty clear that he's part of why things went wrong there, and I think... More so, more and more these days, people are looking at that scenario and saying, I don't want to be a part of that. I don't want my career to be tainted by that. And I also just don't want to be, you know, working in a potentially negative environment like that, you know, even smaller scale, you know, not worrying about your reputation as much, but just that doesn't seem like it would be fun for me to work there. I don't want to do that. So I wonder if that's that kind of mindset is growing. It kind of seems like it is to me. And if that's true, then that's just a point against the Red Sox job even even with all of the positives in play there.
1: I have nothing to add to that. It was well said.
0: Well, I think we have one more bit of news then, John, unless we can find a way to spend a half hour talking about Bob Melvin, we might finish early this time. <laughs> no. I know it's it's unheard of. Um but, but let's let's give bob melvin and and this bit of news all of the time it deserves uh let's not rush through it or anything but <laughs> uh yeah this one you know on the one hand the writing was on the walls for it a bit but on the other hand it looked like they were kind of talking in another direction here so so the padres have allowed bob melvin to interview for the giants managerial opening which going into this off season you know as the season was winding down there was a lot of smoke to the idea that you know, something's got to give here in San Diego. This was a disaster of a season. You know, there were clubhouse concerns. Nothing went according to plan. The clock's running out. This is an expensive team that didn't even make the playoffs, et cetera, et cetera. And so when those kinds of things happen, you immediately look to the manager and to the the general manager, or head of baseball ops. And so a lot of people looked at AJ Preller and a lot of people looked at Bob Melvin and said, one of these guys has to go, you know, whether it's an actual issue with the relationship here or just we need a scapegoat or whatever one of these guys has to go and from pretty early on you know right at the end of the season they came out and said uh, peter seiler came out and said aj's my guy bob is my guy these they're, they're staying here i don't have any plans to move on from either of them i i'm looking forward to seeing them run the team in 2024 but seems like they've kind of changed directions here and According to Dennis Lynn and Andrew Baggerly of The Athletic, Bob Melvin is the favorite for the Giants. And and it kind of makes sense, you know, if if you're the Padres and you're going to allow your kind of superstar manager to interview for a division rival. How how is he going to just walk back to you after that? Like, how is the division rival going to say, nah, and then and then. He just comes back and he's managing the Padres next year. How does that work? Like that's not <laughs> no. gonna happen. So no, I think it does not. I think there's a clear direction here. It seems very likely. And you know, we we've said things like this before and we saw with the whole you know, not it's kinda apples to oranges, but the whole Carlos Correa thing that, you know, nothing is finalized until it's finalized here. But it seems like Bob Melvin has the inside track to being the Giants next manager, which oh, there's, I, I have a lot of mixed feelings about that. And I'm sure you do too, but this is just, it, it's big. It's it's really big for the NL West. Um, You know, I, I think we could talk for a while here about whether, you know, about the role of a manager and whether Melvin's name precedes him a little bit in this. And, and you know, maybe the actual impact he'll have on the field and in the clubhouse isn't as sizable as this news will be made out to be. But I also think it's kind of a big deal. And it it indicates some changes going on both in San Diego and San Francisco that are pretty interesting. So this news just broke today. I honestly don't know if I've given it enough time to process it, really. Um, what, what was your reaction to this? And how do you see this going for both of these teams?
1: My first reaction was, huh, okay. I'm not surprised, given what we know about the contentious relationship between Preller and Melvin. But my second reaction was, wait a second. Okay, they granted him permission to interview for a job with one of their direct competitors. Like, imagine if you worked for I don't know Bank of America and Wells Fargo wanted to call you, you wanted to interview, and would would you think you would be? And you did. You think you'd be coming back to your Bank of America job? Like, that's just not. You know, it's done. In other words, it put put a fork in the relationship between Preller and Melvin. He's not coming back to the Padres. What whatever happens with the Giants, he probably gets the job. But even if he doesn't, the fact that the Padres said yes, go, that broke the relationship for good. And he's not coming back after that. You can't publicly say, yes, go interview with somebody else, especially one of our direct competitors. And, (laughs) oh, if it doesn't go well, let us know, we'll bring you back. It's like, no, that's not happening. It's over. So um, that's my my dominant thought right now. Um, But I also think there's probably a second thought, which is if it's because of that, because the Giants have, um, you know, jumped through some hoops to get to him, and i read one of the sort of middle paragraphs of one of the stories that said oh and by the way they in order to do that they promised that he would be given extra special consideration in other words he's not just in the pool of regular candidates like he is extra special candidate all of that says there's smoke there's fire there's probably a job there waiting for him in san francisco so this is almost a done deal if it's if it's being announced and reported on at this point
0: yeah and we we can maybe talk about Melvin specifically here because you and I have both been A's fans and watched Melvin pretty closely and saw how he ran his teams. The sense that I've always gotten is he's not necessarily anything special from, you know, an on-field perspective. He's not, you know, an early days Joe Madden where he's this innovator and he's trying out all these wacky ideas that are giving his team extra value. You know, he's not doesn't have some edge with defensive shifts he doesn't push all the right buttons in the bullpen every day he doesn't always pull his starter at exactly the right time whatever he's not he's not superlative in any of the on-field sense but the report you get is that he just really knows how to run a clubhouse and that's why some of the reporting coming from san diego was so surprising that The clubhouse there was unrest there and there was lack of leadership and questions about certain individuals and that goes into a whole rabbit hole that i believe we touched on in the last episode of like okay is the clubhouse unrest preceding the poor performance or is the poor performance leading to the clubhouse unrest and like would the clubhouse have been hunky-dory if they had won 10 more games and made the playoffs we'll never know but given that we've always gotten kind of rave reviews from Melvin or on Melvin uh, and his performance within the clubhouse and keeping these guys and making sure they all buy into the vision of of his his team and his front office and and all of that that makes him seem like a pretty good fit for the Giants especially since there were reports of unrest in that clubhouse as well and kind of a a lack of a direct line of communication between Farhan Zaidi and the players and, and that was supposed to be the manager's job and we haven't even mentioned the connection between Farhan Zaidi and Bob Melvin Zaidi was with Oakland for a while as well so I think he makes a lot of sense for the Giants especially you know just speculatively maybe part of why it didn't work as well with the Padres is that he had never really managed a team full of superstars like that before like his days with the A's even even the best players on the A's that would get MVP votes like they were barely national names they didn't have that same aura that a Manny Machado or a Juan Soto or a Fernando Tatis Jr. has about them that was just never something he had to contend with and so maybe that was tough for him to get a handle on at first and going to a more familiar setting with a team of relative nobodies in San Francisco maybe that's a good landing spot for him and Especially since we expect that team to be aggressive this offseason after missing out on Judge and Correa and now, oh, there's Otani. They're they're expected to be near the front of that race and going for other big names as well. Maybe the stars are aligning a little bit better for him to be in a bit more of a familiar situation where rather than being dumped into this dumped directly into the fire of all these conflicting big personalities. Instead, he can be the one who starts from scratch and kind of pieces it all together. That's at least my, you know, optimistic outlook on his fit with the Giants. Um, do you do you read similarly? Like, did, what was your kind of understanding yeah, yeah. of Melvin during his time with the A's and how he might fit here?
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like, there's nothing. There's no standout quality like a Joe Madden and his quote-unquote innovations. And I don't think that's necessarily in vogue or necessarily wanted by anybody. I think whatever what most teams say is they want somebody who is in sync with the front office because nowadays you know they have daily analytics and they they say okay this guy you know use him this way this guy use him that way and that's what Zaidi had with Kapler until they until he didn't. Um, in 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 Preller's case, I think he's it's clear he's a micromanager. And so Melvin was like, what are you doing in my dugout? Get out of my dugout. This is my space. So, it, you know, I'm simplifying, but that's basically the gist of it. Um, so I think he's the type of person who will, will get along well with the front office uh, so long as they don't invade his space or overrule him or, you know, step on his toes or, you know, get in his stuff. So he wants, like, a clear line, like, this is my clubhouse. This This is my thing. I'm happy to work with you. Give me the numbers. I'll, you know, I'll do the best I can with them. But I also want a little give and take with, you know, I've got a feel for it. And so his most successful jobs have been that way, where it's a little bit of give and take on both sides. There wasn't that give and take in San Diego and there were egos getting in the way. So I think that's why that failed. I think it looks pretty good on paper, given his relationship with Zaidi, given his history with the Giants in the Bay Area. Um, So I think that looks good. Um, The team he might inherit, should he get the job, It's kind of a mess, though. (laughs) You know, they kind of fell apart this year. And, you know, the free agents they signed, Hanager and, you know, a bunch of old pitchers, you know, are showing their age and their health issues. And so, and there's not much of a core coming up either. So, you know, from his point of view, am I stepping into, like, a winning situation where i take it to the next level no, probably not he's stepping into a situation similar to what he did with the a's in 2011 which is okay there's problems let me see what i can do let's build a clubhouse let's see if we can work with front office and let's go from there and and that's perfectly fine i think that's a good fit for him so all in all i think it makes sense
0: yeah, I I agree. And then the flip side of it in San Diego, I don't think this is a situation where they you know interview a few guys and then they promote the bench coach. That's not what's happening there. Mm-hmm. And especially because the bench coach I believe is Ryan Christensen, who followed Melvin to the mm-hmm. Padres from the A's, and you'd kind of assume he would do the same to the Giants. It seems like those two are kind of a package deal. They're they're pretty close. Mm-hmm. Um, so now the the Padres another high profile job are are suddenly looking for a manager Craig council. (laughs) I mean, I, I, the, the Mets fit might be stronger and it's been rumored for longer, but this is maybe even a more attractive job than that one. I guess it doesn't have the David Stearns connection. And as you said, maybe there's some meddling going on with Preller, but this is an immediate win. Now high profile team rather than what council would be stepping into with the Mets where, they kind of have to figure out what's going on for the next year or two and, and work themselves back into a contender. Now that they've st- taken a small step back. I, I don't think it, it's counselor bust or anything like that in San Diego, but I do think this is a role that really needs an experienced manager. And maybe even that's, that might just be like the optics of it, right? Of it, it just seems weird to have a rookie manager thrown into this fire yeah. thrown into this clubhouse with the Soto's and Machado's and Tatises of the world knowing that 2024 is the year they have to win because then Soto walks like yeah. I don't think that's something you would throw a less experienced guy into like it's it's got to be a big name
1: fuck I think it's <laughs> bring Jim Leland
0: back Jim Leland yeah right <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah.
1: I mean, yeah that's got Buck Showalter's name all over it I agree I, I think you're making a good point now no of course I'm 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 not being Totally serious here, but and I know he wants the Angels' job, but why would he take the Angels' job if he can manage the Padres to a World Series? Because the Angels are even more of a mess than the Giants. So, like, uh, I don't know. I'm just speculating here, Um, but that seems like a the type of guy that they need, who can manage the egos, who's had some big name players and some big name towns, and so sure, why not?
0: Yeah, and obviously this is still very early. This news just broke a couple hours ago at time of recording, so. I haven't even seen any you know short lists of speculation for or names that might have been connected to the Padres job or anything like that. We're still in the very early goings here, but I imagine a lot of baseball people they already have Craig Council on the brain. He's going to be one of the first spots their mind goes, and we're going to see all of that buzz for a while until you know I don't know if it's going to take until the playoffs end or what for us to actually get a final answer on what Craig Council is doing, uh, but. Just a, just another team to throw into that mix there, I suppose. And and you're right, a, a guy like Buck Showalter, you know, uh, I'm I'm struggling to think of any other names at the at the current moment. But an experienced guy who can really go in and and say, yep, we're gonna win this, and you can trust me when I say that because I've done it before. I think that's what they're gonna look for. Now. I'm not going to sit here and overstate the importance of that because I think a lot of that's kind of optics, but that, that's also half the job is you know getting ownership of your clubhouse, and and to do that you have to look the part too, and and have maybe the reputation to back it up. So
1: you know, and, and again, I'm I'm only speculatively joking here, but. There is a trend. If you look at, say, Bruce Bochy in Texas, of once a get a team invests a lot of money in players and expects to win, and they don't, with perhaps a, you know, young maybe a younger management type, um, there tends to be a trend that okay, we need we need the old guy who's got the feel, who's got the clubhouse chops, who basically can come in and be the adult in the room and get us to the next level. The Bruce Bochy model. And so I do think there's something to that. Um, And, you know, I know that that sort of counters the prevailing belief that, you know, it's sort of a young whippersnapper who is in sync with the analytics. And, yeah, that works well, too, for clubs who maybe don't have that pressure to win a World Series now. Um, So when you think when you come down to it, when you got a a situation like that, you know, if you think about it from the owner's point of view with Peter Seidler's money and all the money he spent going over the luxury tax on a small market team – he's got one more shot at it he he probably needs a guy who's the adult in the room to manage the machado egos egos and so on to get them to that place so i think that's the right kind of archetype for this job
0: yeah and another example is dusty baker in houston where right they they hired him while they had a very analytics heavy regime in place and and things have changed a little bit since then and you know Jim Crayton has become a more meddling owner in in the last couple of years, but I I think there's an, there's an agreement in, in the modern game where even, you know, even a manager with the best reputation, the oldest school manager who can, you would expect to be able to walk into a job and just call all the shots. That's just not how the job works anymore. There's, like you've said, there's always going to be push and pull with the front office, and it's just a matter of how much. And so I don't think every manager needs to just be a front office mouthpiece in today's game, because I think the players know that, and that may, might cost the manager some respect. And and I think, you know, there there is some feel to all of this. There's definitely managers like a Bochy or like a Baker where they'll make some decisions that aren't coming directly from the front office. They will have Altuve bunt in the playoffs like Baker did it the other day. Like, I don't think that came from the top. I think that was a dusty Baker being old school moment, but he's also not going to stand out there and let Justin Verlander try and throw the eighth inning at 120 pitches for no reason. Like he's adapted to the modern job to an extent and the modern job is kind of adapted to him to a current extent. You know, he's not getting fired because he tells Altuve to bunt. So there's there's push and pull to all of it. There's benefits to having that old school guy that the players trust, even if he doesn't follow best practices analytically to a T. And there's also benefits to having a guy who might be more in tune to those analytical best practices, depending on where your team is in the cycle. So yeah, yeah, I think you're I think you're absolutely right that there is kind of a cycle to this. There is there are tendencies based on what your team looks like and the pressure that's on your team in the moment. And I think we're in agreement here that the Padres are at that stage right now where it's it's kind of experience or bust.
1: Yeah. And one other point I would want to make in favor of the clubhouse reputation kind of manager is, you know, let's take an example with bullpen management. So, you know your front office might say oh yeah let's use this left save the lefty for the seventh inning you know during the course of the game maybe there's two lefties coming up and so you want your lefty there the manager might say well yeah but i used him two days in a row and his arm is tired and maybe the analytics people have even figured that out say well we've we've run We run the numbers. He can go three in certain situations, but the manager might say, "Yeah, but he didn't go to get a good night's sleep last night because his wife is about to have a baby, and they've been, you know, they're human beings." And so the clubhouse, the manager that owns the clubhouse, knows that he's managing 26 human beings, each of whom has their ups and downs in their day-to-day lives. And it's his job to know those nuances. In the front office number of countries may not know that. They may know it's best to pitch this guy, but they're not machines. And so that's kind of what it boils down to as well, And as well as managing the egos and developing that sense of trust that I got your back, that I know who you are as a person, and I know what makes you tick. There's a – ultimately my point is there's a blend, an ideal blend here of of humans and numbers. And the manager is kind of kind of managing both at the same time. And the front office can manage the numbers, but the manager of the field has to manage the humans and the numbers at the same time. And that's a delicate kind of balancing act. And so it's a bit of a high wire act job. job and that's why some of these situations like this one in San Diego may require that person who knows how to do that balancing act really well.
0: Right. That's a really good point, really good way to put it. Um, I think that's about all I have for this episode, though. Is is there anything else you want to uh, tack on here before we wrap it up?
1: No, just a reminder to, um, you know, uh, we're launching a new site soon. Uh, we'll have more information. Uh, it'll be in our newsletter, and we'll keep keep uh, informing you about all the details of that. So look for that soon.
0: Yep, looking forward to it. All right, that'll do it for this week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at com. Or find us on Twitter, at Baseball Values, or on Blue Sky under the same name. Also, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates. So until then, stay safe and enjoy, I think, the World Series? I think, yeah, we, we will not record our next episode until after the World Series. So we're getting down to the wire. and Enjoy the rest of the playoff fun. Thanks, John. Thanks, John.